You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. I am so excited to welcome our guest today, Joel Helley, a dynamic leader in the specialty medication space. A pharmacist by training, Joel serves as the Vice President of Physician Services at CVS Specialty. And he's passionate about creating a world-class specialty pharmacy experience for patients, prescribers, and pharmacists. As of this year, more than 66 million Americans are on a specialty medication. And CVS reported that specialty medications accounted for more than 52% of drug spend in 2020. The good news? Conditions that were untreatable decades ago now have effective therapies. The bad news? The journey from diagnosis to treatment remains costly and onerous. Joel has a unique perspective both professionally and personally, on what's needed and what's next in specialty therapy. And he truly believes there is a better way and is working every day to help get patients on their medications quickly and with less administrative burden. He's also passionate about his work in health equity and using social determinants of health to help make sure that healthcare, including specialty medications, is accessible to all populations. Welcome, Joel. Thank you so much for having me. You know, you've been at CVS for a very long time, and I want to get into all of the things that you've learned and that you're doing today, and especially around the specialty prescribing process and so forth. But I actually really would love to start with where you started. Where did you start? How did you, you know, where did you grow up? How did you decide you want to be a pharmacist? That kind of thing. Sure. So I grew up outside of Boston in you know a small town. When I was a senior in high school, I said to my mother, Ma, you know, what do you think I should major in? And she kind of paused and she was thinking and thinking and said, How about a pharmacist? And I was like, okay. So I think walking into it, I didn't really, you know, even know what I was walking into, you know, it worked out really, really well. I didn't have pharmacists in my family. You know, a lot of people have that. My sister was a nurse, so I think my my mother might have thought of that. Uh, but it really came from her just saying that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Like you look at the catalog of jobs and you think, oh, pharmacist must be it. That would be the one. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Did you like science and so forth before? Yeah, I was definitely math science kind of guy, you know, so. When you finished pharmacy school, did you actually practice as a pharmacist for some time? Yeah. Interestingly, I worked at CVS for five years, like in the retail store in Bristol, Connecticut. Actually, my boss came to me and said, Joel, you know, this recruiter had reached out to me about sort of this job. They're looking for pharmacists to go, you know, talk to doctors and influence doctors rather than sort of pharmaceutical reps. And it just made me think of you. And I was like, are you trying to get rid of me? And he's like, no, no, no. I just, I know you've been telling me like you want to do something different and whatever. And so I went to interview for PCS Health Systems. And then I started working there. and, And then five mergers later you know, through PCS, Advanced PCS, Caremark, CVS, Caremark, Aetna, I ended up sort of back to CVS. So I've been here 27 years, but if you counted those first five years, 
I'd really be here like 32. Oh my. Yeah, no, that's great. So I have one of those merger, merger, merger stories as well that ended up at a very large company, McKesson. So um, I'm, I'm very familiar with those like acquired by and then acquired by and then acquired by. <laughs> yeah. And so it has felt like I've been in the same place, but in a lot of ways there's been, it's been so different. Every merger is like a brand new story. I can tell you, you know, Absolutely. Lots of opportunity comes from those changes. So and it sounds like you've had great advantage there. So that's great. Let me, let's just go back to talking to doctors. Just early, still stay in early career. When you were talking to doctors, what at that point were you talking about as a pharmacist? What were those conversations like and what did you learn from those conversations? So it was really interesting. And the reason that we started that was PBMs were starting to understand that they needed to get discounts on drugs when there's similar ones in the same categories. We attempted to say, what if we put pharmacists out there to go out and talk to doctors and say, hey, use this drug versus that drug. They're the same. You know, like at the time in the ACE inhibitor class, there was 15 of them, all brands. You know, if we chose three or four to be on our formulary, and they're pretty much all the same, not exactly the same, but, you know, in the same category. And we're able to go in and tell the doctors, like, look, there's a significant savings for these three versus the others. Now, interestingly, at that time, there was no copay differentials. Everything was, you know, $5 for your prescription, et cetera. So we went out there and we were pretty successful at, you know, getting doctors to move patients or maybe not even move in the beginning. It was more new patients coming on board, you know, write these three drugs if it's one of our health plans. And then this sort of advent of um, tiered copays came out right? Generic versus brand versus preferred versus non-preferred. Then we ended up sort of moving to gaps in care, like diabetics who are not on an ACE inhibitor. And the value of the PBM became greater for us to be able to tell, you know, our health plans that we can help with some of these gaps, like diabetics should be on an ACE inhibitor. They should be on a cholesterol lowering medication. And so we, the difference with what we did is we brought in patient-specific data. So when I went in, I could say, okay, these five patients you know, on a non-formulary drug that are really expensive. These three patients are diabetics, but it doesn't look like they're taking an ACE inhibitor. You know, should they be one? Of course, the doctor would make the decision ultimately if he wanted to put someone on. And then compliance reports to say, hey, this person's on, you know, this blood pressure medication, but it looks like they're not taking it every day, which may be why, you know, if you're not seeing blood pressure control, it might be because they're not adherent, you know, with the medication. And so we found that doctors found that valuable right? Because it was the patient-specific data. We weren't in there just talking about one drug. We were in there talking about cardiovascular disease or blood pressure or cholesterol lowering or gastrointestinal, whatever it was, and tried to have a view across all of the different drugs. So you've seen this evolution of benefit design, I guess, from many perspectives, because you've seen it by from the perspective of the doctor and working with them, which you just talked about. That, that whole progression that you just went through around, you know, when the drugs were all the same cost, regardless of what it actually cost, same cost to the patient, to the tiers, to working with gaps in care. And then the progression of the conversation, I would imagine the early conversation didn't have as much patient-specific data. And then it grew. Yeah. Right? In the very beginning, we just used data to see like what percentage you were writing a formulary versus a non-formulary. But then doctors would say, like, I can't remember because it was about Caremark clients, right? So it was hard. It's still today. It's hard for doctors to know what is Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts formulary versus Tufts versus whatever other plan. 
um, in order to keep that stuff straight, they don't know. So we were in there to help them keep it straight. When it's, you know, ABC plan, when it's Caremark, when it's advanced PCS at the time, use these drugs and they'll be considered formulary. And so that led to the advent of let's bring patient-specific data in and say, hey, is this valuable to you? And we found that doctors found it very valuable. Right, right. And now there's technology that helps the docs make these decisions based on patients' eligibility and formulary right away, right? We bring that. Let's move from just general discussion with doctors into the specialty world. When did you start to really focus on specialty prescribing? So I guess about 13, 14 years ago, someone from the enterprise had reached out to me and said, hey, I don't even know what a specialty drug was, frankly. You know, there's this thing called specialty and it's growing really fast. And, you know, we're predicting that in the future, it's going to get even bigger. And we have a small sales force today that's out in doctor's offices. And we intend, you know, that that will grow as specialty grows. Would you consider sort of coming over? And I was like, yeah, I was super excited because it was kind of what I was doing. But all the new stuff, it was cancer, it was hemophilia, it was pulmonary hypertension. I think 11 different therapies at the time, of which I didn't even really know those therapies, right? So it was a bit scary when I first came over. You know, we were, you know, single digit, $8 billion, I think back then in the specialty world, where today we're $53 billion. So in that 12-year period, there has been just tremendous amount of growth within specialty which meant a tremendous amount of new drugs, of more people, of more doctors, of more indications. Really everything around specialty has been really what's driving the drug spend for payers. So along with that comes a couple of things, right? Like one is they're really, really expensive, right? So payers have to decide how do I make sure that the right people and the appropriate people are on those drugs, and then secondarily, the specialty pharmacy has a lot more work to do within specialty drugs than you would for a small molecule, you know, blood pressure medication. Oh, there's so much there. You know, let's talk for a minute. Can you just, for all of our listeners, define, you said, you said they weren't even defined way back when. Can you define specialty prescribing or specialty medications for our audience? Yeah. So um, we would define specialty. Everybody has a little bit of a different definition, right? We would define it as very expensive, which means, you know, more than $6,000, $7,000 a month, right? Number one. Number two, it may require refrigeration. It may require additional training for injection and or infusion and or some different route besides an oral drug. Uh, it may require what's called a REMS program, which is Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy. And then secondly, for specialty, it almost always includes prior authorization for those drugs. And that prior authorization tends to be much more complex than it would ever be in the small molecule world. And the therapies tend to be more complex. And so the pharmacies are built to help sort of doctor's offices navigate through that prior authorization process. So that's sort of kind of a long definition of what we consider specialty. Onboarding a patient, just from the patient's perspective, does the patient know that they're on a specialty medication? First of all, does the patient even know that the, that the medication that they've just been prescribed is, quote, special? 
they learn it very quickly, right? So what happens is very often someone just found out they have cancer or they have pulmonary hypertension or they have some very rare disease that they've never heard of. And that's very scary, right? To find that out. You just found that out from a doctor. And then the doctor is going to say, hey, I'm going to put you on this drug. You can't get it through a regular pharmacy. You have to get it through a specialty pharmacy. So Mary in the office here, she's going to help you and, and decide which specialty pharmacy to send it to. And, you know, you'll get some more information. And that was, it's very trying time, right? Like number one, you just found out you have a rare disease. And then number two, you're using some pharmacy that sounds maybe scary. Specialty pharmacy sounds scary. And then you're waiting for them to sort of reach out to you. So the patient is, has just been diagnosed with a, with a significant disease of some sort. It's probably quite sick. Yeah. My son, um, you know, has Crohn's disease. I'm a pharmacist in specialty, right? His mom is a pharmacist in specialty. And uh, he went on Humira, which is a specialty drug. And that first time through was really hard for us. And that's what we do for a job. <laughs> and my son was in pain, right? Because Crohn's disease is painful. And you get very frustrated, like it's not happening sooner. And why, you know, I want this drug. It's supposedly going to fix him. I want this drug now. And then it's taking seven, 10 days to get through the prior authorization process while he's still in pain and losing weight and sick and looks miserable when it's your kid. But then, you know, the other part I'll say about specialty drugs is what once he went on that, he's never had another issue. Now, you are clearly passionate about this work. And I know a lot of that has to do probably with the work with your son, but you're passionate about it anyway. Can you, where does this passion come from? You know, I think when you're in the specialty world and we're dealing with people who have cancer and we're dealing with people who have hemophilia and pulmonary hypertension and Crohn's disease, and you see these patients and these families and these parents, like, it builds a passion inside you. Like, what can I do to make this process better? And having been through it myself, that helped me to, to sort of have the empathy and the compassion for it. But I also think a lot of these are life-ending diseases, right? Not always, but cancer, pulmonary hypertension very often can be. And people are just trying to like live their best life. And having to deal with all the healthcare administrative burden you know, is difficult. And the second piece I would say is over the last, you know, couple of years, I've been much more involved on the health equity side, meaning how do we make sure everyone has equal access to specialty drugs and whatever that are out there. And that's sort of opened a new passion for me in that I want to be part of the solution to make sure that regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of where you live, regardless of who you love, that everyone has the same access to care and that, you know, we recognize that there are things in healthcare like discrimination that, and racism that we can work together to sort of squash out. And because I've been so involved in specialty all along, it's been really exciting for me to see us get into that space, look for health disparities and then fix them. That's great. I do want to talk about health equity. And I know that you've been instrumental in the work that CVS is doing around its health equity efforts. So can you talk a little bit more about it? You've been, you've been pointed out as really inspirational in this work. So can you talk a little bit more about, <laughs> about what you've been doing there? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing we had to do 
was use the data. So it's kind of like years ago with formulary and that kind of stuff. Health equity is about using the data. And so we first had to understand who people are. The way we do it, we create a tool. And I feel like a lot of organizations have tools today. And we created a tool using you know, 24 different indices of publicly available data around things like housing, around things like food, healthy foods, around things like access to a hospital, access to pharmacies, education, employment within those issues. If you put all those things together, it basically spits out zip codes where we say it looks like it's harder in these areas and you might see disparities based on all these different social determinants of health. What I've really been you know, surprised by is that no matter what data we put behind it, when we look at those zip codes, there's always a disparity. So when people live in you know, particular areas and they don't have access to education and hospitals and uh, jobs in the same way and food and transportation, then we see disparities in things like adherence to medication, gaps in care, like I mentioned before. And so you say, how could that be? Well, you know, our programs were built sort of one size fits all. Let's remind people to take their medication every day. Let's remind them more often. However, in some of these areas, when you look at the social determinants of health, if people don't have enough food or a place to live, it seems a little bit ridiculous to remind them to take their medication every day when they don't have a place to live and not enough food. And then the second one I would just mention quick is organizations are now getting better at collecting actual race and ethnicity. So if you want to, if you want to tell, just like when you do when you're an employer and you say, I'm white, I'm black, I'm brown, we would capture that information. Now I could look within the data again to see if there's disparities. And I think our chief health equity officer, Dr. Joni Khaldun, she gives a really good example of, you know, a black woman with an advanced degree has worse maternal outcomes than a white woman without a high school diploma. And all that tells you is that it's not about money. It's not about where you live. It's not about schooling. There's something else that's going on within maternal care that we need to look closer at to understand uh, why Black women are not having the same outcome. So let's go back to the data. Where does the data come from? Because, you know, I've spent some time in this industry, clearly, and there's plenty of data and claims, but it's not everything, right? And there's a lot of, I've, I've heard plenty of, of stories around pulling buying patterns from, well, from the retail store and that kind of thing. So you understand like where the diabetics likely to be and where the, where does the data come from is the question. The data that we get publicly available is around things like access to housing, homelessness in particular geographies, um, access to hospitals, access to healthy food, access to transportation. Those social determinants of health determine someone's ability to navigate easily through the healthcare system. And when I was in school, you know, I think we learned it was about your genes, right? And your ability to sort of what high blood pressure, whatever you're going to have, it was about what are your genes and where did it come from, et cetera. And now I realize those social determinants of health, where you live, what access do you have to healthy food, what access do you have, are more important to your ability to navigate through. So there are publicly available data sources that now we're getting much better at putting them all together to say, 
this person is likely to have challenges if they live in this geography. So as you look at those social determinants of health and um, look for the disparities and where there are disparities, I'm sure there are plenty. So how do you prioritize them? We're sort of working through that right now as an enterprise and then in specialty too. As an enterprise, I think we'll tackle some big ones around things like heart health, around things like mental health. You know, you're 33% more likely to die if you're Black in America. We need to look at that and understand why. And a pharmacy benefit manager and a pharmacy has an awful lot of data to help understand what, where those disparities are and what we can do. The first is to use the data to understand where they are. And then the second is um, to create programs to, to support them. There are other areas like HIV, where we know 70% of new infections are in Black and Latino individuals in underserved areas. And so we have an obligation and an opportunity to understand why. And we can create programs around things like testing and screening um, to make sure that people know their status. We can uh, create programs around things like adherence to make sure that if you are on HIV medication, you take it every day. And the other one is sickle cell. Predominantly Black folk have sickle cell, some brown, mostly Black. And these folks have been treated terribly because it manifests itself in terrible, terrible pain. And they'll go to the ER to get help. You know, we hear stories from the National Sickle Cell Association that security walks them right out the door because they think they're drug abusers looking for opioids. And so how do we as a pharmacy, as a PBM, help people understand the disease better, meaning our own clinicians to start with them, right? Pharmacists, nurses, anybody talking on the phone, as well as help communities and other physicians understand that so that when they do walk into the ER or they do walk into a pharmacy, and we have the data in the system that already tells us this person has sickle cell, that they get treated appropriately. Do you have some success stories already? Yeah. You know, one good example we just um, uh, did a, a few weeks ago, actually, is National Testing Day was in June, the end of June. And we were able to work in five different underserved communities and get Gilead to sponsor free HIV tests in those areas for that two-week period around National Testing Day. And, you know, so exciting that we can, that the barrier is, I don't know, I'm HIV. I don't, I can't afford to get a test. Let's put in something to do that. And I think we'll do more of that. And I think we'll expand that to do more. And so it's been great to work with other organizations. The one thing I'd say is CVS can't do it on our own. We got to work with community partners. We got to work with doctors. We got to work with hospitals. We got to work with other big companies, other big data companies to get together to understand how to fix these disparities together. Because just one company is not going to change health equity across you know, the United States. But with the assets that we have, miniclinics and pharmacies, et cetera, we, we can really make it done. You certainly can. And you've, you've got to start somewhere. You know, I was in California on the provider side a long time ago, and we were doing community needs assessments at the time required. And we went out into the community. I remember going out into the community and going and talking with church leaders and community leaders across the area that we were serving in California at the time. And it was a big job. So the, I mean, it just, your, your description of needing to work clearly within the community um, is important and it's a big job. It's a whole other level of work. 
So you did you did mention how this work intersects with the specialty prescribing work that you're doing. But can we go there for a moment and talk about healthcare equity and specialty prescribing? In today's world of specialty pharmacy, we talk to those patients every month. And there's requirements within specialty that you have to sort of answer about six questions every month around how the drug's working, are you having any issues, et cetera. And so we talk to them either through apps and or digital resources or on the phone. And then they can actually uh, talk to a pharmacist through secure chat as well. When someone has an issue like with a copay and they can't afford it, we put them through to our, you know, sort of RCC, we call it. I don't even know what that stands for right now. But the, um, it helps, it, that group helps them find funding to cover their copays. At that same time, we now have an opportunity to talk to those patients like, do you have other issues, mental health issues? Do you have, and if they do, we can get them to the right resources to support them. We're talking to them to every month. If they have issues with social determinants of health, like housing and or food, how do we help those patients with those issues? Because we're talking to them every month. And so that's where I think specialty has, will really, we're just getting started here, right? But that's where specialty, because we have these folks, I'll call it captured, you know, each month we have an opportunity. If you're, you know, like mental health is a great example. If you have a rare disease, right, and you have issues with social determinants of health, Mental health comes very much along with that. And so how do we make sure that we're giving people enough information, education, awareness about the resources to help with mental health? Um, And I think the specialty pharmacy can really be, do a really good job there. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine, you know, you talked about specialty medications requiring infusions, for example, sometimes. So they have to actually go somewhere on a regular basis. Or a nurse comes to your house. Right. And through our quorum is, is the area of our company that does that. And so that's another example where every month we have a nurse that's walking into a patient's home or walking into, you know, one of the infusion centers. How do we make sure we take that time to ask other questions about things outside of just your disease that you're dealing with, like mental health, like cardiovascular disease, like HIV testing? You know, we, we need to think sort of broader about these patients than just the one disease that you're treating. Oh, I love that. That is so true. Just to, and using the time that you're spending with them anyway to get other information, have other conversations. And I bet that those traveling nurses who go to their home are incredibly helpful for those who actually can't get to the infusion center, for example. They are. And they, you know, they form relationships, especially when it's the same nurse every month, you know, and they start to trust those folks with the information that they're giving and create relationships with people. And that's where people really want to consume information about healthcare is people you trust, right? Not the TV, right. not whatever, especially in today's, in today's world, you want to trust someone before you, you know, listen to their advice. Let's circle back to your work with CVS specialty and just specifically, I mean, it could be, it could still be in, in health equity that you you focus, but just CVS specialty now, where are you innovating now? I think the biggest innovation in specialty continues to be digital. And what I mean is like, how do we, that all that administrative burden I mentioned before, how do we take it out? How do we make it simple from onboarding? So from the minute you find out that you're going to be on a specialty medication and the doctor's office 
asks you, can we give the phone number to the pharmacy? Can we send them a message right away? We're here to help you. We're here. Here's the information we need. Here's what's happening. All the way through in specialty, the biggest challenge has really always been, where is it? People just want to know like you're working on it, especially if I'm in pain or something's going on. Both the doctor and the patient want to know, where is it? And so if we have that sort of digital connection through text, through app, through connectivity to the doctor's office to say, here's where it is. We're waiting on copay support. We're waiting on, uh, we're waiting to hear from the doctor. And the doctor sees that and says, oh, geez, and comes into us and gives the answer. That's what's really going to make specialty easier, quicker, faster. So I'm going to go to inspiration now. One of the things that I'm really interested in, I spend time talking about it with my team. I write about it is how people get inspired. And I see lots of sources for inspiration in your career and and what you do every day. But what inspires you? What what makes you get up in the morning? What inspires you? It's the people. You know, I mean, I, I, I cannot tell you how many examples we have of where we fixed something, right? And I always think to myself, when we fix something that was a problem, how do we make sure that we don't have to ever fix that again? And that's what inspires me so that when someone, you know, does have a challenge or an issue, we can remove those issues for others. And it's partly that pharmacist in me. And then it's partly, I just want to make this easier. You know, I have a son who has a rare disease and I know what it's like to go through. All of us are affected by cancer, right? And I'll get calls from people saying, are you a CVS specialty? Because here's what, you know, I'm dealing with. Can you help me? And I say, absolutely. And I think when you help people and you fix those, it drives inspiration to make the whole process better. Just gave me chills. So as a national leader in healthcare, you must have some things that keep you up at night as well. Yeah, I think two things right now. One is, you know, the cost of specialty medications is so astronomical, right? That I keeps me up to think like, how is the system going to keep up with this? I mentioned earlier that I feel like some of these drugs are miracle drugs. They work so well. And yet being so expensive, how do we make sure that everybody has the same access to it. Wow. That that um, seems like a great aspiration and seems like a given, right? But, but not easy to come by. All right. What do you see as the biggest opportunities for innovation in healthcare? The biggest opportunity continues to be our ability to talk to each other electronically. And what I mean by that is like a doctor's office with a hospital, with a pharmacy, with a PBM, with an insurer, and making that all smooth, easy, I'll call it transactions. Maybe at some point it won't even be a transaction, right? And when people talk about things like AI, so that we can ahead of time predict what we think might happen so that when it does, all the administrative work has already been done. That's what I think innovation has to be in healthcare. Well, Joel, this has been an amazing conversation. You are truly inspirational. You really are. This has been, you know, from from the work that you do with specialty, making sure patients get on their medications faster and health equity, making sure everyone has access. It's just inspirational. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us in this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, being here today. Thank you, Joel, for sharing your vision and your passion for transforming the specialty journey. You've clearly got both the clinical background and the heart 
for the work you're doing, which as you shared has real world, even immediate impact on patients facing life altering conditions every day. Thank you too for reminding us that one of the biggest opportunities for improving specialty prescribing and dispensing is actually improving connectivity and the ability for the patient, the provider, the pharmacist, and the health plan to speak to one another electronically. We've also got to continue to digitize the process to speed time to therapy, access patient data and benefits in real time, and remove the phone calls and faxes and delays that still riddle the system, keeping a patient's health in the balance. Your stories and commitment to addressing health disparities and inequalities really touched me, and I'm sure our listeners as well. There truly is a better way, that regardless of where you live, the color of your skin, or who you love, that you have access to life-changing treatment and the ability to live your best life. For those of you listening in, we hope you'll join us again. Upcoming episodes will focus on solutions to clinician burnout, why everyone should love EHRs, and how to make interoperability work for patients and practitioners alike. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review, There's a Better Way, Smart Talk on Healthcare and Technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.